book of Job, chapter 4, if you will, turning to the book of Job, where we're continuing our study in this series. This evening, we're considering Job chapters 4 through 8. I'm only going to read Job chapter 4, but I'm going to be referring to various parts of chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8 as well. It would be too much to read that whole part. So, Job chapter 4, where we begin to hear and see what Job's counselors have to say. Job's friends, these men who apparently were of great stature and influence, similar to Job, who was the greatest of all the men in the East, probably very well known in their communities and towns, probably coming from distant places, Gentiles, all of them were Gentiles at this point, point, including Job himself, because this was before there was a Jewish nation, probably taking place near the time of Abraham. We're not sure whether it was, most likely it was before Abraham, but it could have been right about the time of Abraham. And so, well-known men, known for their wisdom, known for their godliness, apparently hearing from afar the circumstances and the sufferings of Job, their acquaintance and their friend in some way, coming, and we saw in the last sermon that they sat with him without speaking for seven days until finally in chapter 3, Job cries out in lament and curses the day of his birth. Probably Job coming to the very edge, coming as close as you possibly can come to cursing God but not doing that, cursing the day of his birth, but certainly in great despair and in anguish. And now we hear their response, and the first to speak, I'm going to read the first part of Eliphaz's testimony and comfort, so to speak, to Job. Eliphaz probably being the senior statesman among the three. We think of him as a wise, almost kindly old man, and this this speech is the kindest of all the speeches that are to come in the book of Job. It just goes downhill from here. So, what you're hearing is the kindest. We think of Eliphaz framing his words kind of as graciously as he can, but there's a point to them as well. So, let us give heed to God's Word as we read the words of Eliphaz. Then Eliphaz the Temanite replied, "'If someone ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? But who can keep from speaking?' Think how you have instructed many, how you have strengthened feeble hands. Your words have supported those who stumbled. You have strengthened faltering knees. But now trouble comes to you, and you are discouraged. It strikes you, and you are dismayed. Should not your piety, literally your fear, speaking about his fear of God, should not your piety be your confidence and your blameless ways, your hope. Consider now, who, being innocent, has ever perished? Where were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. At the breath of God they are destroyed. At the blast of His anger they perish. The lions may roar and growl, yet the teeth of the great lions are broken. The lion perishes for lack of prey, and the cubs of the lioness are scattered. 
A word was secretly brought to me. My ears caught a whisper of it. Amid disquieting dreams in the night, when deep sleep falls on men, fear and trembling seized me and made all my bones shake. A spirit glided past my face, and the hair on my body stood on end. It stopped, but I could not tell what it was. A form stood before my eyes, and I heard a hushed voice. Can a mortal be more righteous than God? Can a man be more pure than his maker? If God places no trust in his servants, if he charges his angels with error, how much more those who live in houses of clay, whose foundations are in the dust, who are crushed more readily than a moth. Between dawn and dusk, they are broken to pieces. Unnoticed, they perish forever. Are not the cords of their tent pulled up so that they die without wisdom. May God bless the reading and the hearing of His Word. The war had quickly become an unpopular one. The mail to the president was running 20 to 1 against the war, against what he was doing. It had only been a few short months since everyone had been with him, At that time, the press, the Congress, the American people in general had supported him, but now all seemed to be very dark, and the way ahead was hard going. And the president was not unaffected by the words of many of the letters he received. To quote one, I wonder how well you have been sleeping these last nights. Mothers and fathers all over our beloved land are spending sleepless nights worrying over their boys being sent to fight wars on foreign soil, wars that are of no concern of ours. Another that he received, just a phrase from it, we demand that you stop murdering American boys. Or another, in heaven's name, what are you doing? We have nothing to do with that people. These people are capable of settling their own affairs. As I'm sure you probably guessed by now, that was not a description of what's happening now with President Bush or the war in Iraq. No, it was President Harry Truman and the beginning of the Korean conflict with American troops in full-scale retreat at the time. But I mention this example not to attempt an analysis of what may or may not be a just war. I'm not going to go into all of that, but to point out that even a president is not unaffected by the words of others, even the words of ordinary citizens. Well, Job has experienced deep suffering. We've seen that. He's lost his children, all ten of them. He has lost his wealth, all his possessions, all his herds, his house. He has lost his health now. He's sitting on this ash heap, this garbage dump. And now we find that he's lost his reputation as well. And that theme is going to come out as the book unfolds. His name is now a byword, and it's a theme for mocking song. And now with chapter 4, we see one more element added to Job's suffering, 
an element we might see as the final crushing blow that will take Job down even further, if that's possible, we might add. And that element is the counsel and advice of his friends. I say friends, and then when I've written friends in my note, I put quotation marks around the word friends because the words of these so-called friends might as well be the words of enemies. And we will see that in chapter after chapter, these words that are intended to somehow help have the opposite effect. And the fact is, not only do these words deeply wound, but they wound because they are misguided and false. Now, this is a difficult thing because it's not that their words are altogether false. In fact, there's a verse in chapter 5 from this first speech of Eliphaz that's quoted in Paul's epistle to Corinth about uh, the fact that um, he catches the wise in their craftiness, verse 13. So, Paul takes that one verse and says that element of it is true. And we know that the principle is repeated in the New Testament, you reap what you sow. And Eliphaz says that here in verse 8. So, obviously not everything these friends say is wrong. We know that the proverb says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. But that is referring to truthful speaking that is done in love. The advice of Job's friends fails really on both counts. It is not truthful, and it is not ultimately loving. And we'll see why this is so. I'm sure that all of us can think of times that someone has said something to us that was not true or that was not loving or both. Maybe there are some painful memories that immediately come to your mind when you think of that, but probably I'm guessing we'd have a much harder time remembering when we said such things to others. It's always harder, isn't it? It's always more memorable to be on the receiving end of those kinds of words. Well, the, the, this evening, I want us to begin to understand this central part of the book of Job by asking two primary questions as we think about these words. Number one, what was wrong with the advice of Job's friend? friends? Where did it go wrong? What was wrong with their advice? And number two, how did Job respond? And especially under that point, what do we learn about trusting God in the extremity of such a test as Job experienced? So, let's consider first what was wrong with the counsel of Job's friends. In chapters 4 through 31, for the, the, really the majority, the, the meat, the heart of the book of Job, we see the speeches, the dialogue of Job's friends and Job. One of the three friends speak, Eliphaz first, Bildad, so far, and in between each, Job replies. There's a, there's a, there's a great debate going on. And as after they speak, Job responds. And these speeches intensify in, as, as the book goes on. Uh, they, they become harsher, as it were. And the accusations of Job's friends become more and more shrill. And what you'll see is, if you read through all these, even the very structure 
of the three cycles of this debate, the three friends is the first one, and Job replies to each one. Then there's another cycle like that, and then a third one. And, and actually, in the third and final cycle of debate, the very structure shows and indicates to us that Job essentially refutes them in what they say because the second of the three speeches in that final cycle is very short. Bildad can only manage six verses, and they're not usually that short. And in fact, Zophar's speech is missing. It's almost structurally showing us that Job has silenced the three friends. But there was a fundamental problem with their counsel, with their theology. And it is this. The three friends... As, as true as some of the things that they said were. And, and if you read this, it's a struggle for us as Christians to say, well, is this the Word of God? Is this all true? Because a lot of what they say is true, but it's wrongly applied. And their failure is that they failed to understand the limits of conventional proverbial wisdom. Proverbs Proverbial wisdom, as such as we find in the book of Proverbs, is true to a degree, but can only be pressed so far. Here's a quiz so that you can figure out what I mean by this. True or false? It's a trick one now. True or false? You reap what you sow. That, no, no, that, it seems like that's true, right? The New Testament reaffirms that. But it's a trick question because... Obviously, first thing I would ask is, does it apply to Job? Does it apply to Joseph, Daniel? Does it apply to Jesus Christ? What about Stephen being stoned? What about Paul? You see, proverbial wisdom is true in a sense. You reap what you say, so is true. It's true in a limited way, or maybe a better thing to say is it is ultimately true in every case if you consider things from an eternal perspective. Jesus Christ, for example, did Jesus Christ reap what He sowed? From an eternal perspective, He did, right? He saw the travail of His soul and was satisfied. He, he reaped wondrous benefits, our eternal redemption, But if you have a limited perspective and if you were walking around with Christ on the earth and were saying, was this a sinner? Is this man good or evil? And then you see him crucified and that's all you understood, you would say, well, he must have seriously sinned to reap that kind of a death. You see what I mean? So, proverbial wisdom, which is exemplified in you reap what you sow, only goes a certain distance in this life unless you're talking about it from an eternal point of view. From an eternal point of view, Stephen being stoned, Paul the apostle and his sufferings, Daniel, Joseph, they all ultimately reaped what they sowed. Yes, so it's true in that ultimate sense. But the problem is Job's friends did not have omniscience like God knows and sees things. It was not true of Job. But look what Eliphaz, let's just look at his speech to Job as it begins. We're not going to be able to look at every verse. 
But in verses 1 through 6 of Job chapter 4, Eliphaz says in verse 2, if someone ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? In other words, Job, be patient now. Don't get agitated about this. I'm going to speak to you. I'm going to say some hard things to you. And he starts to talk about how Job was a a person, was a well-renowned man who strengthened others. Verse 4, your words have supported those who stumbled. You have strengthened faltering knees, but now trouble comes to you and you are discouraged. It strikes you and you are dismayed. And verse 6 is very key here. Should not your piety be your confidence and your blameless ways your hope? What's his advice? His advice is this. Job, you are a godly man. You've given others advice, and you know what our advice is. And actually, he's accurate because Job would have been given the same advice as his friends. They all had the same theology at that time. That's That's what confused Job so much. His theology didn't seem to apply to himself. And what Eliphaz was saying to him, Job, if you're basically fearing God and if you're pious, if you're walking with God and and you've been serious in your walk with God and not involved in any secret or scandalous sins, then you have confidence, confidence in your own sanctification. And you know that if that's true, you reap what you sow, you've been sowing good things, then you'll basically reap good things. And even though this Serious suffering may be with you for a while. It'll be gone soon. You see in verses 7 through 11, the summary of Eliphaz's and Job's theology. Consider now, who being innocent has ever perished? Were the upright ever destroyed? Have I observed, as I have observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. You sow evil, you reap it. And then Eliphaz goes into this vision. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but in verses 12 through 21, there's this description, there's this conclusion that he makes. He has this dream, this vision, this spirit glides by his face, and there's a debate about where the quotation mark should be about what this vision was. I think it begins and starts with verse 17. So you see maybe in your own translation there, quotation marks that begin at verse 17. In the NIV, those quotation marks go through the end of chapter 4, but probably, I think, and I'll take the view that many scholars do, that it's just verse 17 itself. And the question that this, this vision says is, can a mortal be more righteous than God? Can a man be more pure than his maker? And then Eliphaz makes some conclusions about that. But even verse 18 is theologically askew. If God places no trust in his servants, if he charges his angels with error, Eliphaz seems to be saying even the good angels have some error with them, then what do you expect for us? In, Eli- in other words, Eliphaz, in this vision and in his advice, there's this satanic, subtle twisting of truth. And even this vision and all he concludes is a real discouragement to faith or hope. It's like he's rubbing Job's nose in his sin. In chapter 5, he goes on about all of this, and he essentially, if you look at it, he's saying in verse 8, for example, but if, if it were I, I would appeal to God. I would lay my cause before him. He's saying, well, Job, go to God. He will hear you. And the emphasis that comes out throughout speech after speech after speech until Job's tired of hearing it, and we're all tired of it as well, is Job, just call on God, 
repent, confess your sin, and everything will be all right. In fact, the only mention in the book of God disciplining us is here in in Job chapter 5. It's not mentioned again, interestingly, isn't it? Because it's such a New Testament theme. We read it in Hebrews 12. But notice Eliphaz does come to it. Go down to verse 17 of Job 5. Blessed is the man whom God corrects. So do not despise the discipline of the Almighty, for he wounds, but he also binds up. He injures, but his hands also heal. But then from what he goes on to say, I'm not going to read it all to you. It's a very limited teaching on God's discipline. It's like Eliphaz is saying, the godly man will suffer, but not very much, and for not very long, that's implied, and he will quickly experience God's blessing and protection after that. So, it's a very limited application of this theme of God's discipline. Well, you get a taste of the kind of advice given here, and it's, it's, it's like it's true theology wrongly applied to Job's case. If you skip over, Job replies in chapter 6 and 7, and we're going to see something about what he says, but I just give you a taste of where it goes. Bildad comes in, in chapter 8, and let me just read the beginning of his speech to see how quickly this becomes very harsh. Then Bildad the Shuhite replied, how long will you say such things? Your words are a blustering wind. Does God pervert justice? Does the Almighty pervert what is right? When your children sinned against Him, He gave them over to the penalty of their sin. Wow. Talk about harsh. He comes out with both barrels blasting and basically says, Job, fess up. God's just. Your children must have done some serious sinning to be killed like they were, or else it was your sin or both. Your children died because they sinned. You see, not only was that a hard-hearted response, but that was downright wrong theology. And we might step back and say, well, what was the solution to Job's plight? Well, their solution was, like I've said, own up to your sin. It must have been really, really serious, Job. Stop hiding it. Confess it. Job wasn't really saying that he was without any sin. He wasn't speaking in a, of a perfectionism that he didn't have any, any sin at all in his life, but he, was, but he was pleading and wondering about all this and, in a sense, going to God, not understanding because he wasn't guilty of any terrible hidden sin, any worse than anyone else around him. In fact, there was real evidence of his faith, of his walk with God. The problem, especially with Job, is up until his experience, his theology had been the very same as the theology of these friends. So, he probably would have said the same thing. Well, essentially, the friends were saying, repent and your circumstances will become better. Now, we need to stop and ask ourselves this then. We need to say, well, how do we need to avoid being a Job's friend? I like the way Proverbs 25, 
20 puts it. It says, like one who takes away a garment on a cold day is one who sings songs to a heavy heart. You see, there's an example of right theology wrongly applied. Your, your song might have right theology. You might be filled with praise. But the proverb there says, if you sing a song to one who has a heavy heart, it's like taking away someone's coat on a cold day. It, it's not what he needs. It may be innately true and right, but it's not the right medicine at the right time. Proverbs 26, 9 has another verse that describes it like this, like a thorn bush in a drunkard's hand is a proverb in the mouth of a fool. Like a thorn bush in a drunkard's hand, can you imagine that, is a proverb in the hand of a fool. So we must put a watch and a guard over our hearts that our advice, our counsel isn't like that thorn bush just wreaking disaster on those around us. There may be a time that we need to confront someone about sin. That's true for husbands and wives and parents and children. It's true in the body of Christ. We know that the Scriptures have a lot to say about how we're to admonish and encourage and, and, and say different things at different times to one another. There are many uh, examples of this that we could go into. Ken Sandy, the author of the book, The Peacemaker, does a masterful job of, of guiding us about this. How, how do you live a peacemaking kind of life? When is the time to confront? When is the time to wait? And if you're going to confront, how do you do that? We could talk a lot about that. But one thing we learn from Job's friends, I would say, is there are two areas to be very careful about giving wrong-headed kind of advice. One is that, I would put it this way, this kind of advice, if you have greater faith, everything will be fine. That's kind of in the spirit of Job's friends. They actually don't speak about faith in that sense, but it's in that category. Uh, People can say some very hurtful things that add to an already deep hardship when they speak about these kind of things. And, And I would say that this is typically and can be the charismatic error when there's that theology that says that if you have enough faith, then you won't be sick. You won't have problems in your life. You will be prosperous in an earthly way. And so, if there's sickness, if there's financial setback, if there's tragic death even, it could be that that's from a lack of faith, it would be said. And I know those testify to having been deeply hurt and wounded by Christians who have given this kind of advice. Well, that's the advice of a Job's friend. Yes, all of us need greater faith, but it's a very, very critical mistake to make a one-to-one correspondence between suffering in someone's life and connecting it somehow to a lack of faith. Yes, pray for someone to have greater faith, encourage one another to have faith in God and to increase in our faith in God, but beware of giving that kind of advice. The other kind of advice that goes right along with it, and is directly from Job's friends, is this. You must have seriously sinned to be, experience, to be experiencing such a hardship. In other words, you're experiencing this hardship in your life. Well, examine your life. Find out what sin it was that brought this on. Confess it, and you'll get right with God, and this hardship will go away. Now, we know that there's an element of truth to that because the Bible tells us that 
in difficulty and hardship, it's, it's really wise to examine our hearts. So we ought to do that. But even as we do that and even as we see our sin and, and suffering, in a sense, stirs up the sediment of our sin in our heart so that it, it swirls around in the cup and we see it more when suffering comes our way, that doesn't mean that we are to conclude that that specific sin caused the suffering as if God's punishing us one-to-one correspondence for our sin. We could talk about a lot of examples of this. One of them is parents raising children. If a child grows up and doesn't walk with the Lord, does that mean that there was some specific sin or something sinfully wrong with that parenting or in that parent's life? No. Yes, we could look at proverbial wisdom and say, generally speaking, Christian parents, good parents, loving and firm parents will raise up children who love the Lord. We see that in our church. Lots of our kids know and love Christ. But there are definite exceptions to that. And general proverbial wisdom only goes so far. So if Christian parents raise a child and as an adult or a a, a young adult, that child turns away from the Lord, maybe never returns to the Lord, we don't know. Are we to make judgments about the quality of the parenting? No. That's a mistake sometimes it's made. As if, oh, that, that child going astray shows some uh, deep, dark secret about a failure of parenting. Yes, all parents sin. Yes, all parents sin in many ways. But you can't say, well, this family had three children that turned out fine. That proves that they're really good parents. This family had two children turn out fine, but one, oh, one never did come to know Christ. There must have been something a lot worse about them. No. We know that that is bound up in the mystery of God's electing love. We know that ultimately salvation is of the Lord. We should be very slow to make judgments about that. Or maybe pastors with problems in their church. I was at General assembly last week, and I got to talk to some friends and old friends, and and there are stories of churches with problems and pastors going through very difficult times. Well, maybe this isn't a mistake that you'd make as quickly, but would you be quick to jump on the bandwagon and say, well, pastor, what was the deep, dark mistake that you made to bring that onto yourself? You know, if that were the case, then what did Paul do to get the Corinthian church so messed up? No, that's not the case. Yes, again, leaders fail and sin, pastors fail and sin, members of the church fail and sin, but try to minister to one another without jumping to conclusions in judgment about some deep, dark sin that they brought this on themselves. Or somebody suffering a financial hardship or a sickness or a job loss. Yes, there are times when financial hardship is from poor financial management, lack of wisdom, things like that, but not always. So, we must beware of jumping to conclusions. I wonder if a Christian from North Korea were here among us who was suffering deeply, or a Christian from the Sudan were here, would any of us be saying, oh, you're going through this because you're not walking with the Lord right? No, we wouldn't be saying that. We have a more full-orbed theology of suffering that's rooted in the cross of Jesus Christ. He didn't deserve that at all. And there's a deep mystery tied in with why God's people suffer the way they do, whether it's in the Sudan or whether it's in Lancaster. 
avoid becoming a Job's friend. Take wisdom from them. Well, the second main point we want to look at in our time is how did Job respond to this? How did he respond? We see a number of things about his response. The first is we see anger and hurt in Job's response, and it shouldn't surprise us, I would think. At least we see anguish and grief. I think we see anger more and more as the speeches unfold. Look at the beginning of Job's reply in verse 6. Then Job replied, If only my anguish could be weighed and all my misery be placed on the scales, it would surely outweigh the sand of the seas. No wonder my words have been impetuous. The arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks in their poison. God's terrors are marshaled against me. Does a wild donkey bray when it has grass or an ox bellow when it has fodder? Is tasteless food eaten without salt or is there flavor in the white of an egg? I refuse to touch it. Such food makes me ill. But the food he's referring to there is Eliphaz's advice. He's saying, your words are tasteless to me. It's like the yolk of an egg. I guess the yolk doesn't have much taste. It, and that's how your food is. In other words, it's not helping me, Eliphaz. It's actually not any good. And this sense of anguish increases as the speeches go on. Look at verse 14 to see what he says here. A despairing man should have the devotion of his friends even though he forsakes the fear of the Almighty. Job is saying, friends, even if I should abandon God, I would hope that I would still have your devotion, but I don't, obviously. And I'm not abandoning God. He hasn't done that. He's refused to curse God. But he's saying, if you were really my friends, you'd be sticking with me in some way, and you're not even doing that. Now, notice here that I'm not saying that Job was without sin in some of the things he said. Even though at the end of the book, God says Job didn't sin like his friends did in what they said, Job does repent. God asks him at one point, I think it's Job 38 verse 2, he asked him, Am I, are you discrediting my justice, Job? That's in verse, chapter 38 verse 2 and chapter 40 verse 8. There are references to that. After God speaks and appears before Job, and so Job repents. But I think Job's reaction is a caution to all of us. As the speeches unfold, it's very easy for righteous indignation and deep hurt to quickly become mixed with some degree of sinfulness. Again, Job, for the most part, was right. But there were some things he said about God that discredited the justice. He was too quick to say, Lord, I want my day in court. And we would almost say, boy, it seems like he had gone through an awful lot. I'd be saying the same thing. And we would, I guess, probably, were not for God's grace. But Job did pretty well. So the first thing we see is Job's anger and hurt, his grief. And this will increase. But the second thing I want us to see is Job wrestled with his understanding of God. Job was wrestling with his theology. And there are various themes that begin to emerge as we see these speeches. One is that Job seeks a mediator, an advocate. It's pointing ahead to Jesus Christ. In other words, there's, there's theological development as he wrestles with this, as he sees that the conventional wisdom of his day didn't explain all this. 
He asks God for a day in court. He realizes that there must be an answer, even though his friends don't have the answer, and he doesn't have it either in his own theology. And actually, in this sense, the book of Job is pointing to Jesus Christ. It's pointing to the cross. We don't know how much Job, in that shadowy Old Testament way, knew about the cross. We knew that in some sense, Old Testament saints look forward to the Savior to come. But Job, I think, grew in his wrestling with God. And there are times that the only way that we're going to grow in understanding God's Word and understanding the Lord is in times of suffering like Job. And sometimes when even those nearest to us, our best friends, those whom we would hope for comfort from them, are causing us more confusion and anguish, often it's those times in which the Lord is at work the most. Well, the third thing I want us to see from Job is that he learned more deeply what it meant to trust in God even in the face of such wounding words. He learned more deeply what it meant to trust in God even in the face of these harsh words. Remember, Job responded so well when the trials initially came. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job hit a home run, a grand slam initially. But I think even more remarkably is that Job kept wrestling with God. And you see that come out, even his first response. I want you to notice this thing. If you read through this book, if you think about it, Job is the only person who ever prays. The friends of Job never pray for Job. They never pray with Job. But Job is responding to them, and he he just very quickly goes from responding to them, and soon he's praying. Job is a man of prayer. Look at verse chapter 7, the prayer that we see there. Chapter 7 is actually a prayer in the form of a complaint. Let me just read the first part of it. Does not man have hard service on earth? Are not his days like those of a hired man, like a slave longing for the evening shadows, or a hired man waiting eagerly for his wages? So I have been allotted months of futility, and nights of misery have been assigned to me. When I lie down, I think, how long before I get up? The night drags on, and I toss till dawn. My body is closed with worms and scabs. My skin is broken and festering. My days are swifter then a weaver's shuttle, and they come to an end without hope. Remember, O God, that my life is but a breath. My eyes will never see happiness again. And as you read down more, he's crying out to the Lord, O God, remember. O watcher of men, verse 20, why have you made me your target? Have I become a burden to you? Why do you not pardon my offenses and forgive my sins? For I will soon lie down in the dust. You will search for me, but I will be no more. What do you do when a friend wounds you deeply with ill-considered words? It happens in the church. It happens in our church. I know it does. You go to God. It's an avenue to learn more deeply what it is to walk with God, to share in the sufferings of Christ, to commune with the Lord to experience God's grace in a deeper way. I know that in our first church, I had a number of experiences of this, and I'm sure some of these kind of things were from my own inexperience and lack of 
wisdom, but I remember a letter that one person set out to everyone in the church accusing me of heresy. That hurt. It was about Reformed theology, but it was sent by someone who of anyone should have known better than that. And I responded to it in a way, I don't know if I did the exact right thing, but I know that one thing it resulted in, it did drive me to the Lord in a deeper way. It drove me to my knees to plead with the Lord. And thankfully, the Lord preserved the church from schism and helped us to continue to hold the gospel out and to grow, but it was not without some deep pain. The Lord's sovereignty is a deep mystery, isn't it? And Job didn't know much that we know. Even in the New Testament era, we know that we see through a glass darkly. So we need to be slow to judge the wisdom of God. We must suspend judgment when it comes to evaluating in an ultimate sense the lives of those around us. Yes, we are to encourage each other and to uh, correct one another when we see that, but we must suspend ultimate judgment. And even in examining our own lives, as we examine our sin, we need to be going to the cross to realize that our standing with God is on the basis of what Jesus Christ has done. One example that's always struck me is the example of wrestling with the wisdom of God that Sarah Edwards experienced. I'll just read as I close her response. Jonathan Edwards, this great pastor and theologian who became president of the College of New Jersey, it was called at the time, Princeton, and wanting to be a good example, received the smallpox vaccination, and because it was only in developmental stage, it affected him to the point that he died Sarah Edwards, still up in Stockbridge, gets the news, and I'll just read to you the letter that she wrote, her daughter Esther, taking pen in hand and saying this, What shall I say? A holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud. Oh, that we may kiss the rod and lay our hands on our mouths. The Lord has done it. He has made me adore His goodness that we had Him so long, speaking about her husband. But my God lives and he has my heart. Oh, what a legacy, oh, what a legacy my husband and your father has left us. We are all given to God, and there I am and love to be. Speaking about resignation to the wisdom and sovereign love of God. So, if there are Job's friends in your lives, go to God and seek not to be a Job's friend to those around you. Let us pray. Father, We do thank You that the light of the knowledge of God has burst upon the scene in Jesus Christ, full of grace and truth, and now we live in the light of that historical fact, the cross, the resurrection, the ascension of our great and glorious Lord. We pray that in the sorrows that we face, You would help us to do business with You, to seek You, to rest in You, that You might be at work in our lives the glory of your name through Jesus Christ. Amen.